This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast to discuss all the things that sit on the intersection of finance and energy. This is Hill Vaden, your host, and I am here today with Michael Stoppard and Shankari Srinivasan, both experts in global gas and both vice presidents here at IHS Market. How are both of you? Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Hill. This is the second time I've done one of these. And I did say to Shankar, you see, I, I must have done something right first time. And she said, no, no, he was just giving you a second chance. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. And this is my first time on Hill, so very thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yes, and I, I'm excited to have, have both of you here, but both Shankri for your first time and Michael for your, your second time. So, so if we have any questions, Michael's going to be our expert exactly. uh, th- throughout the conversation today. So so we've been trading emails. It's, it's now the, the, the first week in September, and we've been trading emails as we uh, kind of wrap up summer um, and, and get ready for um, an exciting end of the year. Uh, around a report that, that you guys recently um, contributed to and led called a sustainable flame that the role of natural gas in a net zero I guess economy or net zero world and and I was just talking you know just before we hit record here uh, about an interview I listened to recently with Rasmus Ankerson who, who is the co-director of football at Brentford FC in London and where I found some perhaps odd similarities between that, that conversation and our conversation today. So, 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 so go with me as a, on this for a minute here. Chakri's nodding your head uh, <laughs> saying, all right. Um, but, but Rasmus wrote a book called The Goldmine Effect um, and, and his whole thing is looking for that, that the quote that the talent that whispers in football or, or soccer for, for those of us who sit here in the US and, and where I was kind of connecting this bit between my you know interest in soccer and interest in energy um, is that natural gas really seems to be a whispering talent in the decarbonization uh, conversation. And that's, uh, I would say, particularly relative to some of the non-whispering talents of solar or batteries or hydrogen or some of these other things. So, so Michael, maybe you could either tell me I'm off base or, or, or uh, agree with me here, but, but help to frame whether gas is a whispering talent and, and what led us to the sustainable flame research project. Yeah, no, I absolutely love I love this expression, whispering talent. I have to say, last time I joined you, you began by referring to some popular musician <laughs> that I'd never heard of. And this time you you I hope I'm not going to cause any offense by saying you, you refer to a fairly obscure uh, English football team, not one of the most well-known Brentford football clubs. So I'm impressed with your so- soccer knowledge, Hill. Well, they are in the Premier League for the I think the first time ever, uh, and, and they've at least won one or two uh, matches this season. You're more up on the latest football results than I am, or soccer results, as you call it. Yeah, but yes, managers of sports teams sometimes have interesting philosophies, and whispering talent, I think, is a good expression um, for natural gas. Some time ago, about ten years ago, we were running with the idea with Dan Jurgen a lot 
of promoting the voice of natural gas. So this is not not a new idea that natural gas has always uh, had quite a quiet voice, really. And we and we did feel that there is a need again to restate and reimagine revisionize uh, the role that gas can play and particularly within this new framework of, of net zero uh, and one of the key points of the work that we did in the study that we took is to try don't always succeed but to try to talk about gas rather than natural gas um, because we want to widen the vision of what gas and pipelines can deliver to the economy and to decarbonisation, and natural gas is a very important part of that, but there's more than natural gas involved. Uh, we also want to take a look at hydrogen, of course, uh, and renewable natural gas, and even other things such as ammonia, so really widening the definition of gaseous molecules there. Okay. Yeah, well, I think, Michael, is it important to add that why are we talking about um, gas in the wider sense and decarbonization that we really think, I mean, electricity is, of course, going to play a huge role, but really can't do it alone. And, and so that the gas overall, whether it's natural gas or low carbon gases, um, will have to play a role as well. Absolutely. Well, and I think, Michael, you kind of tip a little bit of where we're going to go with this, but but one of the, the, the more interesting comments or, or discussions in the paper is on the value of infrastructure that, that exists today for natural gas and, and how that can, can be used to transport other types of gas as we get into a more decarbonized world. But before we get into that, though, I'd like to um, talk a little bit about um, the, the role of unabated gas um, and what, what appears to be and again, back to that whispering talent idea, that the developed economies in the U.S. and Europe in particular are already incorporating gas by what about 25% of primary energy needs. Yes. Whereas the developing world, gas in, in many cases contributes less than 10% of primary energy demand to you know each of these economies. So, so, so there seems to be a huge opportunity to hit climate goals and uh, empower, uh, excuse the pun, uh, to, to developing economies. Michael, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd love to. But Shankri, maybe you can just clarify for us that ugly expression, unabated gas. What do we mean by unabated? So really just gas without where you're not capturing carbon, not using carbon capture technologies, or it's not a low carbon, zero carbon gas. It's methane, but where we're not capturing the carbon emissions. Yeah. Yeah, using it in the traditional way. So yeah, so coming back to your question, Hill, it was about the you wanted to know the vision of how how developing countries are thinking about it. Is that where we want to start? Right. There, there seems to be huge uh, opportunity within developing economies um, relative yeah. to the developed. First of all, the the opportunity is huge, as you said. Uh, approximately twenty four percent of the world's energy is met by natural gas, and China and India are around five or six percent, maybe uh, well, that kind of level. So you can just imagine: not only are they growing, but if they were to increase their um, uh, the percentage share of natural gas, you could get very high natural gas use, and they would like it. They see it as an attractive. Uh, clean and useful fuel. Um, I think one of the big drivers in developing the world, in developing countries, is air quality. 
um, pollution. It's, it's slightly less the climate change debate, but we have huge urban smog issues um, that we faced here in my home city here in London uh, decades ago. And those are issues that developing countries face today. And natural gas is a superb way of solving that issue, not only in power generation, but also in transportation. In Chakri, as we're looking at some of the de developing economies, you know, what are the, there seems to be at least a, a plan for incorporating natural gas into an economy because so many other economies have done it. Are there hurdles that are perhaps pre preventing the wider, more quickly adopted natural gas? I think, I mean, one thing when we're looking at kind of new markets for gas is uh, contrary perhaps to how it developed in Europe, where Europe uh, gas started really in the household sector, in the industrial sector, and because of the timing and gas came into the power generation sector much later because of combined cycle gas turbines. I think what we're seeing in developing countries or new markets for gas is power is in fact an anchor and therefore this uh, relationship of gas-fired power stations with renewables, renewable electricity generation is a really important um, you know, partnership going forward. So you need some sort of large anchor in these economies. It could be also industrial sites but in general, it seems to go together with the power sector. And large amounts of renewables we're seeing added, of course, add um, complexity to that, uh, you know, balancing of that power system. Michael, did you want to add something? I was going to jump straight into one of my pet peeves that we addressed <laughs> in the report, which is one of the issues of developing countries, one of the obstacles is to get infrastructure mm -hmm. in place. Infrastructure mainly mean pipelines, but also regas terminals and storage units. And it's a real shame that some of the multilateral financing organizations are pulling away or talking about not financing this critical uh, infrastructure. So um, we really wanted to raise that debate. And I think investing in infrastructure is justifiable and highly desirable. And is that becoming the, the, the big hurdle? Is are, are the politics, I suppose, kind of citizenry receptive to natural gas as an energy source within the developing economies? As a generalization, I would say that developing countries uh, see it as a, as, as a first world luxury good that they would like more of. Um, but they're also, we shouldn't underestimate permitting permission is also an issue in many countries. Um, uh, often that is crowded and getting the permits to build something is not just a developed country issue, it's also a developing country issue. So infrastructure, infrastructure is a key bottleneck. In Chakri, have we seen, I, I know, you know, pipelines, um, whether gas, gas pipelines in Europe or oil pipelines in the US, in the developing world are, are harder and harder to kind of get through that permitting process. Is it a difference? You know, is the permit just more, more of a bottleneck or are there similar type NIMBY mentalities or energy security mentalities to, to, to get through in some of these developing countries? Yeah, I think, I mean, more of these markets are now LNG markets. So it's mm -hmm. really um, about regasification terminals and uh, rather than pipes. So maybe it's a little less complex Flex, Michael, would you agree that that and then, you know, that kind of um, siting 
is more limited than when you're looking at pipelines over long distances where I'm um, getting into much more uh, land and property rights issues as well. And as you can see how, for example, uh, getting permitting for regas terminal in many developing countries would be much easier than getting the permitting for the liquefaction plant in an OECD country like the United States, Canada or Australia, where, of course, it's so difficult. Well, and one of the things with infrastructure is, you know, the idea of the infrastructure is going to be around for several decades. And I think the paper goes into some detail about what's called the lock-in issue. Um, can you talk about that a little, Michael? Yeah, so the issue here is that I think there's a very, very strong case to say that natural gas can have a quick, large and relatively uh, low cost impact on producing emissions, particularly when you're substituting for coal. And I think a lot of environmentalists and NGOs accept that this is uh, an attractive feature. In fact, the vast majority of scenario, net zero scenarios show stable or increasing natural gas use to 2030. But the people are worry about the lock-in impact. They're saying, OK, we recognize that natural gas can be an environmental benefit over the next 5, 10, 15 years. But how is that consistent with getting to net zero by 2050 if you're making very long term investments and pipelines, of course, can easily be around for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, indeed longer. Um, and so that's why a critical part of the report was to say, let's stop thinking about these as fossil fuel assets. They are energy carriers of the future. Um, infrastructure can be repurposed. Um, and repurpose, for example, to to blend in hydrogen or to or to be converted completely to hydrogen, for example. So I think that's absolutely critical to reconcile the short-term benefits of natural gas and the fact that natural gas assets are a long-life asset. So we need to repurpose them. And Shankri, is that true? I mean, some of that to me seems very intuitive or logical with pipelines. Um, is that similarly true for, say, gas-fired generation? Do, do, do they have, call it second lives in, in a net zero world? I think in terms of kind of the end uses and even in terms of in the heating sector, because of course hydrogen can be used in the heating sector as well, there may need to be some kind of repurposing of the infrastructure. Um, but really the more, I would say, the more substantial part of the infrastructure is the pipes and, and um, the moving of the hydrogen um, or the gas overall mm -hmm. over long distances. So, um, and now, I mean, some of the regions like Europe where discussion of hydrogen has become, you know, really very rampant, I would say, um, the infrastructure companies, the gas have come out with very clear roadmaps of how uh, this transition can work from using natural gas today and then moving into hydrogen in the, in the future. So some very detailed plans um, across across Europe, really. And what do those plans kind of look like? Is, is that taking the, the, the rights of way of a pipeline and building a new pipeline beside it? Or can one enhance, so to speak, the steel on the ground today to, to, to switch from methane to hydrogen? Yeah, so I think, I mean, when it comes to distribution grids, if they're polyethylene or plastic pipes, they can use hydrogen without any additional construction. So it's really when we're looking at high pressure um, transmission lines that you would need to construct new ones. So that's where 
there's sort of clear plans in terms of, of moving, transitioning to that, but using natural gas now as well. The other thing to keep in mind is that because this will be a combination of both blue hydrogen, so hydrogen produced from natural gas with carbon capture and storage, and green hydrogen, which would be from renewable sources of electricity, then you start to also look at, well, what is the, how much renewable capacity can we build? And I think Europe, at least, is already quite clear that there will need to be imports of hydrogen in the future. So we're already starting to hear about more agreements for trade, uh, whether it's from the Middle East or North Africa, even Australia, um, to trade to Europe or to other parts of the world, Japan and Korea, where you can start to see sort of a nascent um, international trade market like we have, um, you know, a very developed one for LNG now today. And, and Europe seems to be really at the fore of all of this, Michael. Why has Europe kind of kicked this off uh, on the low carbon gas conversation? So I think Europe has a, what, a 10, 15 year uh, period of developing uh, solar and wind renewables for power. Uh, it's been very successful at part decarbonizing the power generation sector. And suddenly, a few years ago, the policymakers really ran up against the point, OK, we've, we've kind of solved the power generation side, but that's, what, one quarter of the overall energy mix? What are we going to do about industry? What are we going to do about residential? What are we going to do about heating commercial? What are we going to do about industrial process heat? And suddenly you work out that maybe direct electrification is not the answer. And you have to look at a whole range of imaginative, visionary alternative uh, options, which we can talk about. But I think the answer to that question here is that Europe was in the vanguard of finding a partial solution to the power generation and then having to think, where do we go from here? And when we're looking at, you know, Shankar, you mentioned the difference in some of the pipeline, uh, I, I guess, integrity that, that, that some pipelines are, are, are more conducive to, to moving hydrogen than others. What ballpark do we have an idea looking at Europe or looking at the U.S., you know, what percentage of the pipeline would be able to, to, to move hydrogen to, to today versus needing? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of blending, because that's what's been how much you can blend into the system, it's around 10 percent between 10 and 20 percent. But I think at least for the U.S., that's why renewable natural gas is being looked at first, because that can just be put into the system very easily. So um, you see many states looking at RNG, renewable gas, uh, before even thinking about hydrogen. And can you talk a little bit uh, about renewable natural gas, which I guess that's the same as methane or biomethane, it's, right? It's Yes, it's biomethane, exactly. So obviously some states will have you know much more of it than others, and so that's why um, certain areas are really favoring that as, as a way to start to move to net zero um, and policy measures uh, to encourage the use, really. And what are the big catalysts or hurdles for, for biomethane or renewable natural gas to become more of a part of the system than they are today? Uh, probably, I guess probably cost and also... Cost very distributed. You know, is it generated in the right place? Um, but the big, what I learned from doing the study and hadn't appreciated before is I think the big attraction of biomethane or renewable natural gas, as it's called in the United States more typically, 
is the double whammy. First of all, you're taking out and removing the incredibly detrimental methane emissions mm -hmm. that come from the agricultural sector, number one, and that's actually the main advantage. But then you get a secondary advantage. You could, if you can then just put it in the pipeline and it becomes a, a, a zero carbon form of just uh, normal methane. And I suppose some of this also gets, uh, you know, Shankari mentioned earlier, LNG as a potential blueprint for international trade of renewable natural gas or hydrogen or whatever it happens to be. Is there, LNG to me still feels in some ways um, less of an international market than say oil, um, that, that there's still, you know, nuances to, to, to LNG that, that um, you know, are different from that the oil market is, oh, it, can hydrogen look at LNG as a straight blueprint or RNG look at LNG as a straight blueprint or, or are there some things that, that need to evolve for low carbon gases to be traded internationally? Michael, maybe I'll start with you. I think the business model, I don't know what you think, Shankri, but I think the business model for liquefied hydrogen would be very similar to the LNG model in particular in that I think it will be demand back. You find the demand and then you build the investment to meet that demand. You don't just build on spec. And so I think it'll be a much more integrated process just as the gas and LNG uh, bus uh, businesses developed. Um, another interesting question to follow is whether we're going to see a duplicate value chain with the creation of cryogenic hydrogen, liquefied hydrogen plants or whether we're going to see repurposing and reconversion of existing uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas plants. Um, there has been a suggestion that if one were to repurpose a liquefaction, a traditional liquefaction plant, that would be significantly lower cost than building new uh, liquid hydrogen plants. Shankar, I don't know if you have a comment there. No, I think, I mean, I agree with you completely, Michael. I think that it's, it is a, a appropriate blueprint. I think we just have to mention, however, that ammonia is also being considered as a much easier way to move hydrogen. It's already a large ammonia market today. So uh, that's being now discussed heavily as well. And Shankari, can LNG and international hydrogen, will that coexist or, or does one survive at the expense of the other? Well, I think, I guess in the way that Michael described earlier, that we're going to see sort of period of coexistence, definitely, of natural gas and um, now the emerging low carbon fuels. I think in the same way we would see that with LNG and liquefied hydrogen. Do you agree, Michael? Yeah, I think those countries are the mineral resource holders that are sitting on very large natural gas reserves, wish to prolong, of course, the LNG business. And that's why Qatar has taken this very aggressive and ambitious position in CCS in order to moderate the emissions produced with LNG. And indeed, we're seeing similar proposals around the world, notably now in the United States as well. But then you're going to see countries that have no tradition of oil and gas production um, or very limited, like Chile, coming in and exploring the possibilities of, of joining the liquefied gas business via liquid hydrogen, potentially. And in all of this, the, the, there seems to be a degree of required policy support um, to, to, to really accelerate some of these low carbon gas uh, activities. Uh, you, you mentioned Chile. Are, are there uh, other countries that, that we should really be paying attention to as far as kind of setting this, uh, Shankar? 
Yeah, I mean, I think all the kind of major resource holders, as Michael has mentioned, are really looking at hydrogen now as well. Um, but yeah, Chile has, of course, expressed very publicly that they want to be one of the major uh, exporters of the world. But I mean, we're hearing really this from the Russians, from the Middle East players, from Australia. So I think it kind of goes together. And then new, maybe emerging areas where there is a lot of sunlight, for example, where you can produce a significant amount of green hydrogen are also now discussing um, and presenting themselves as, as a player in the future for a hydrogen trade. So it's going to kind of maybe widen the sphere of players um, to not just uh, hydrocarbon resource holders, but also places where there's a lot of sun and wind. Really. Yep. Well. It would seem to really increase the diversity of supply sources. That would seem to be a major advantage. Little uh, sound effect there. Um, I'm surprised you haven't heard the dog barking outside too. <laughs> so a few things going on here. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time, and, and I'll admit the three of us can see each other. Obviously, the people listening to us can't, but but my door is shut so that my dog is not jumping into our frame and distracting our conversation. So on the natural, you know, not not surprising a natural gas conversation, we we, we find ourselves talking about hydrogen. Um, uh, obviously, our, our report here and, and the framework for our discussion is a sustainable flame looking at natural gas specifically. Um, we, we've, uh, you know, I think what, what has kind of routed us here is the infrastructure conversation. Um, we, we started with natural gas, you know, as helping in particular the developing economies to meet some of their low carbon ambition. Are there some other areas, Michael, where we should look for natural gas or, or where natural gas really kind of jumps out as being a big opportunity for us in, in the framework of natural gas itself or so gas itself. Go back to what, why are we talking about hydrogen within the infrastructure debate? Um, it's because of the discussion about stranded assets. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, that people worry both about lock-in of emissions and stranded assets. So both uh, lock-in emissions means that the fossil fuel industry will go on too long longer than we than than is wanted and uh, stranded assets means it won't go on long enough to to for the for the infrastructure assets to be useful but no we're saying the infrastructure assets will not be stranded because they can be repurposed and that's what leads you leads you into the into the hydrogen discussion right yeah but your question was taking us back to natural gas or Take us back to natural gas. So, so, so if we're thinking uh, about, sh should we be viewing natural gas as, uh, I guess, w where should we look at, at really the sustainability of natural gas as to natural gas more as a bridge to, to, to get us to something else? Well, it's a generalization, but, you know, I think because uh, different countries are at different timelines on this on this transitional repurposing. But broadly speaking, the developed economies already have a large share of natural gas, as we spoke about, but are looking to decarbonize or greenify that blend and move on. Whereas it's clearly in the emerging markets where that will happen probably very much later. And they wish to bring in natural gas first and first uh, in the primary instance, so you know we do see significant growth of LNG, uh, not only in the much talked about India and China, but also across Southeast Asia. Um, all the all these economies see a role for increased natural gas. And you know, if you if you take if you take China for example, you know so far 
so far, the discussion of net zero has been very much located within 2060 rather than 2050. And when China came out with its 2060 pledge, there was a comment from the then Indian minister, oh, well, we'll do it by 2070. So that tells you, you know, that in some ways the world is moving on the same pathway, but we're at different points along that pathway. And natural gas still has a major role to play in the early part of the pathway in developing countries. Okay. So coming back somewhat to, to our discussion at the beginning on football and, and Rasmus Ankerson, what one of the things about sports is, is we see individual talent and debate the, the merits of that individual talent. And one of us can, can love or, or not love a player based on whether they can use their left foot or the right foot or whatever it happens to be. You guys have been talking to a lot of different customers, uh, a lot of different players in the industry about this report. What's some potential pushback or, or some, you know, some ideas that, that maybe we should be thinking about of why natural gas might have uh, its work cut out for it? Michael? I think the, the really interesting question that came from this is just to say, is the gas industry being too complacent and can electrification, direct electrification go further? Because, you know, the whole discussion we've had is posited on the idea that electricity can only do so, so much. Yes, you can electrify cars, but you can't electrify heavy duty vehicle um, lorries. Uh, yes, you can electrify homes, but I'm not sure you can easily meet heating of, uh, of, of households with electricity. So there's increasingly going to be a discussion about how true is that? and can electricity push further? And I don't think, I think most people accept that electrification of everything is, is neither needed uh, nor very realistic. But the question is, how far can you push electrification? Uh, our report is saying very much that you need this second pillar of decarbonization. You need to push gas and molecules and pipes in addition to electrons and wires. But the question is, how far and how much? And what is what is the balance between them? Sean Reed, would you uh, agree? Yes, definitely. And I guess maybe Michael, maybe the other pushback is around um, carbon capture and storage, um, because that would be essential to for gas to play this role in in net zero. So, you know, I think the question isn't for carbon capture whether the technology is there. It's definitely there. But at the moment, we don't have kind of the pricing signals to really mm -hmm. make it um, more widespread. So it's really getting those policy measures in place that would um, allow it to develop. And and I guess maybe some questions around, well, is that going to happen? Is there going to be the support for that that is required on the scale required? Those really seem to be two sides of the same coin, that, that a conversation about carbon sequestration inevitably comes to hydrogen and vice versa. Yes. And policy supporting both of them. Yes, absolutely. And I think we'll be talking more about carbon use now and not just sequestration as well. And we're kind of starting to see more and more um, new technologies around using carbon as well. So that'll be an interesting space to watch in the future. Okay. Well, maybe just as a place to, to, to wrap up, one of the things that, that 
seems to be coming out increasingly in some of the conversations I've been having, some things I've been reading, that this move to low carbon and move to solar and move to, to, to some of these really uh, fancy technologies, for lack of a better word, is really being led by the developing world, where this climate consciousness um, is happening in Europe, is happening in the, by, by the developed world, yeah. De developed, sorry, yeah, de developed. Is, is there a, a world where, um, you know, are we moving into a space where the developed world really embraces this kind of zero carbon uh, electricity or zero carbon energy while the developing world starts to consume more and more natural gas and there's almost a bifurcation um, in energy supply? Michael, I mean, is that a potential uh, reality for us? Uh, yeah, I, I, I am. We absolutely can see uh, in certain developed markets, notably Europe or parts of Europe, uh, reducing its use of natural gas. In fact, Shankri, I think we surpassed the peak in natural gas demand use in Europe some years ago, and yet natural gas demand will continue to grow um, in 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 the emerging markets. Um, and this is entirely most. Uh, scenario projections or simulations of the future uh, tend to show this so natural gas in trouble in total demand numbers in the in the developed economy in the OECD economies but compensated for by growth in non-OECD markets yeah I think the figures we had in the report Hill, were about you know 420 to 550 billion cubic meters of additional natural gas would be coming in in Asia Pacific and some of the develop, developing markets. So we really are seeing kind of that shift, I guess, geographically from developed to developing. Okay. Well, that'll be uh, one of the you know one of several interesting things to to watch as this kind of un unfolds. So, so thank you guys both for uh, joining me today. Um, I, I'm you know. I get nerdy about a lot of this stuff, so so this is a, a good conversation. And Shankari, I hope you'll come back for a, a second podcast, and Michael for a third. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I'm wondering what you'll throw at me after the music and the football. You'll have to come up with a, a <laughs> introduction, Hill. Well, if we talk about Oasis, maybe we can combine both in the same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.